Project Build is our sermon series on Sunday evenings as we think together about Nehemiah, the man, the book, and the message. Thinking together about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem in the 5th century BC and learning lessons for ourselves as we are engaged together in the building of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the 21st century AD. And our chapter for tonight is the one that Gordon has just read in our hearing, Nehemiah chapter 4. It's not often that Bon Jovi is quoted from the Welcome Hall pulpit, but I must admit, as I was finding my way around this chapter this week, uh, the line came into my head, whoa, we're halfway there. Not in the sense that we're halfway there, we're only in chapter 4, and there are 13 chapters altogether, but in the sense that Nehemiah and uh, his, the people of God in his day were halfway there. Look with me at verse 6 of our chapter. Uh, Nehemiah writes, so we built the wall... And the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Three parts to that verse. They were building, they had been building, they would continue to build, so we built the wall. Second part of the verse, they're they're halfway there. The entire wall has been joined together up to half its height. And then third part of the verse, the people had a, a mind to work. And I've always been struck by that phrase there at the end of this sixth verse of the fourth chapter of the book of Nehemiah. The people had a mind to work. What a happy, what a blessed thing that was, that God's people had a mind to work together for the glory of God in the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. I know that it might ever be said of us as a local church family that we are a people who have a mind to work for the glory of God and for the building of his church in our place and in our time. But although they're halfway there, it's clear from the rest of this fourth chapter Uh, that there is no room for complacency. Because this sixth verse, which uh, gives us this progress report that uh, the wall is is half rebuilt, is in the context of a chapter which details very real and very serious opposition uh, to the work in which Nehemiah and his fellows were engaged. So I'm calling uh, the message uh, from uh, God's word this evening, make or break, question mark, make or break. Because in a very real sense, this chapter was make or break for Nehemiah and uh, uh, the people that he was leading. How would they, how would they deal with this opposition? How would they handle it? Would they allow themselves to be overwhelmed to be discouraged and to give up or would they see their way through it and past it and beyond it and continue and complete this great project that they had begun positively they were halfway there but negatively there were both external issues 
in the form of enemies, those who were opposed to what they were doing. And there were also internal issues as people uh, were becoming tired and weary and discouraged uh, by the opposition that they were facing. Externally, uh, we have uh, the reappearance of uh, Sanballat and Tobiah in the opening verses of uh, the chapter. Uh, we met them back in uh, chapter uh, 2. For example, chapter 2 and verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, in other words, what Nehemiah was seeking to do, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Well, Sanballat and uh, Tobiah, they uh, raised their ugly heads again in the beginning of this uh, fourth uh, chapter. Uh, We read earlier, uh, Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, verse 4. He was furious and very indignant and mocked uh, the Jews. And then Tobiah, the Ammonite, verse 3, was beside him. Just as we saw that God's people were side by side in seeking to progress the work last week, so their enemies are side by side in seeking to oppose it in this fourth chapter. Tobiah was beside Sanballat, and he said, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone walls. So Sanballat and Tobiah are opposed to what Nehemiah and his people are are doing. Uh, Later in the chapter, verses 7 and 8, Uh, We read about the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, verse 7. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. More than that, verse 8, all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. So there are issues Externally, there are those who are opposed to this great rebuilding uh, project. But there are also issues uh, internally. Uh, For example, verse 10, then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able uh, to build the wall. Perhaps discouraged by this opposition, feeling we've been working hard and we're still only halfway there and there's so much rubbish to be cleared away before even we can uh, build properly. There are those who are tired and there are those who are discouraged and those who are perhaps questioning whether it was ever wise to begin this rebuilding project in the first place. So there are issues externally and there are issues internally uh, too, which draws from Matthew Henry uh, this comment, active leading men have many times as much ado to grapple with the fears of their friends as with the terrors of their enemies. I thought that was striking. Active leading men have many times as much ado to grapple with the fears of their friends as with the terrors of of their enemies. Certainly that was true for Nehemiah in his day. He had terrorizing enemies, but he also had uh, fearful uh, friends. What are we to make of this chapter for ourselves this evening? Well, I put it to you that there is a sense in which we are all halfway there. 
But that is true for us as Christians, and it is also true for us as a local church. It's true for us as Christians in the sense that however long or short a time we've been Christians, we are in some way, in some sense, in the middle of our Christian lives, in the middle of our Christian experiences. What I mean by that is that we are living in the present We are no longer in the past, our Christian life as it has been thus far, and we are not yet in the future, our Christian life as it may yet be. So we're living in the middle of our Christian lives, whether that middle is nearer the beginning or whether that middle is nearer the end. And similarly, we are in the middle of our church uh, life and uh, experience. Uh, We are not the first generation uh, to have been a part of Welcome Hall uh, Evangelical uh, Church. Uh, There has been a fellowship of God's people uh, here uh, for for over 80 uh, years and we trust we will not be uh, the last generation of God's people to be a part of this church unless Christ uh, should soon return. And so we are in the middle of church life, in the middle of the work of building a church to the glory of God in this community from one generation to another. So a bit like those in Nehemiah's day, we're sort of halfway there. We're sort of stuck in the middle. And the question very much for those in Nehemiah 4 was, would they see the glass half full? Would they emphasize uh, what God had already enabled them to do? And would that encourage them to keep going and to persevere, to complete the task and ultimately to triumph? Or would they see the glasses? half empty. Well, we're only halfway there and there are all these who are opposed to us and we're tired and weary and discouraged. And and would they allow that to take any enthusiasm from them and to cause this great project uh, to flounder and uh, to fail? To put it another way, would they, will we, focus on God and his grace? Or would they, will we, focus on others and uh, their opposition? There have always been those in the world who are opposed uh, to the work of Christ uh, in uh, the church. But Nehemiah was enabled to deal with these issues so that the work continued And so that ultimately, later, uh, the job was completed. He didn't allow himself or others to focus on others and the opposition, but rather to focus on God and his grace and to be inspired to keep going and uh, to persevere. But we want to explore a little from this chapter in the time we have uh, tonight how it was that Nehemiah was enabled to deal with with these issues. What did he do in order uh, that uh, uh, the people uh, remained encouraged and motivated? What did he do in order that the work continued 
and uh, the job was completed. And I think we can identify from this chapter quite clearly certainly uh, three uh, things that Nehemiah did and that were key, that were critical uh, to them getting past Nehemiah 4 and uh, the work uh, going forward. I had three T's for you this morning. Turning, trusting and testifying. I've got three P's for you this evening. The first is praying. Praying. We find Nehemiah praying in chapter 4. And that shouldn't surprise us because he's been praying throughout. You remember he prayed in chapter 1 when first he heard of the state of Jerusalem and he was moved to tears. He then went to prayer. And he prayed in chapter 2 as he was before the king and about to embark on this great mission of asking leave to to go and to lead the rebuilding of the walls of the city. And he was praying in chapter 3 as the rebuilding began and continued and as the work went on and as bit by bit different parts of the wall were, were consecrated. And so we find him again uh, praying in chapter 4. He was a man of prayer. And so praying was what he did. As we've said, Sanballat and Tobiah reappear in these opening verses of the chapter. Verses 1, 2 and uh, 3. They're not happy about uh, the progress, how well this work of rebuilding is uh, progressing uh, at the same time, they, they uh, mock it uh, as if, well, it's such a pathetic job that Nehemiah and his people are, are doing uh, that, as uh, Tobiah puts it, even a fox could climb up on the wall and uh, uh, break it all down. But all this from Sambalat and Tobiah in verses 1, 2, and 3, what does it do for Nehemiah? Well, it takes him to prayer in uh, verses 4 and uh, Five. Hear, O our God, verse 4, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So Sanballat and Tobiah, they're doing their thing. But Nehemiah prays. More about those verses in a moment. But just see uh, that Nehemiah is not done uh, praying in this chapter uh, yet. uh, Because as we said earlier, then in verses 7 and 8, we have alongside Sanballat and Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites. uh, They're all angry about what uh, Nehemiah is doing. And uh, they uh, conspire together to come and attack Jerusalem and to create Confusion. So again, what effect does that have upon Nehemiah? Well, it takes him to prayer. Verse 9, nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. So you see the picture that's building. There's opposition, but Nehemiah prays. The opposition increases and becomes stronger. Nehemiah prays all the more. We see Nehemiah here praying. And I suggest to you that there are at least two things that are striking about what Nehemiah tells us about his praying here 
in these verses I've just highlighted. In verses 4 and 5, the striking thing is that words that we are told in Nehemiah are prayed. And then in verse 9, the striking thing is we're told he prayed, yes, we made our prayer to God, but also because of them we set a watch against them day and night. So we find him praying and watching, watching and praying. So just a word on each. The words of the prayer in verses 4 and 5, and then the watch that accompanies the praying in verse 9. First of all, the words. We could really uh, summarize the prayer here in terms of uh, two petitions. Nehemiah is praying, hear us, first half of verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. And he's praying, judge them, judge our enemies, second half of the fourth verse. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Hear us and judge them. Hear us. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Notice how Nehemiah addresses the Lord as our God. And uh, speaks of how the people are despising them, but uh, by implication because he is their God and they are his people, in despising them, they are also despising him. And so Nehemiah cries out, hear us, O our God, for we are despised. But also, not only hear us, but also, as I'm paraphrasing it, judge them. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. And maybe you first read those words and uh, they, they leave you feeling a little bit uneasy. Uh, was Nehemiah right uh, to uh, pray like this and to be uh, praying really that the Lord would, uh, would deal very severely with these enemies who were opposed uh, to the work in which he was engaged. And if you're a little uneasy by the end of verse 4, you might be even more uneasy by the end of verse 5, because he continues in similar vein in the fifth verse. Do not cover their iniquity, and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. Now we know that we need balance in our praying. As Christians, we are called to pray for the forgiveness, pray for forgiveness for our enemies. We have the great example of our Saviour himself, who you remember on the cross prayed for those who were crucifying him, a Father, forgive them. But at the same time, it is not wrong for us in our praying to, to rest in God's a judgment and uh, to know that there are those whom the Lord will bring uh, to uh, forgiveness but that ultimately those who remain uh, to, to repentance rather and forgive but those who remain impenitent will ultimately be judged. Nehemiah here seems to have a strong conviction that these people are so opposed to God and so opposed to his work that God will judge them. And so he prays 
to that end. But then in verse 9, alongside making his prayer, he sets a watch. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them we set a watch against them day and night. This is reminiscent of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember when he told his disciples to watch, and he himself went to pray. And so we learn that we are not just to pray or just to watch, but we are to pray and to watch, to watch and to pray. That in our Christian lives individually and as churches, there are prayers to make and there are watches to set. That we are to be characterized as Christians and as churches neither by a prayerful impracticality upon the one hand, nor by a practical prayerlessness on the other. Do you get what I'm saying? We are to be characterized neither by a prayerful impracticality on the one hand, where we pray but we're not really practical about how to take the work forward or what needs to be done, but nor are we to be characterized by a practical prayerlessness on the other hand, that has a clear vision for what needs to be done and how we're going to do it and so on, but prayer gets forgotten. We are to be characterized neither by a prayerful impracticality nor by a practical prayerlessness. We see here in this chapter that Nehemiah works prayerfully. He works prayerfully. He's been doing so before Nehemiah 4. He does so during Nehemiah 4. And we'll find him still doing so after Nehemiah 4. He works prayerfully. And that's a pattern for us as Christians and uh, as churches. Not all work and no prayer. Not all prayer and no work. But like Nehemiah, we are to work and uh, we are to pray. But we're highlighting for this our first point tonight, that we find Nehemiah praying. When things get tough, he prays more and not less. So that's our first P, praying. Second P for tonight, positioning. Positioning. Because as well as finding Nehemiah praying in chapter 4, we also find him strategizing in this chapter And again, that shouldn't surprise us, because just as he's been praying throughout the book, so he's been strategizing throughout the book. He's been catching a vision, he's been forming a plan, he's been motivating others. And we see, particularly in this fourth chapter, that Nehemiah makes a realistic assessment. And having made a realistic assessment, he then takes appropriate action first of all he makes a realistic assessment he realizes that the enemies are conspiring verse 8 all of them conspired together to come and attack jerusalem and create confusion he realizes that they are coordinating their attack verse 12 
Uh, So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them, there seemed to have been some Jews who hadn't come to help in the work, but they were living uh, uh, outside Jerusalem, but they were aware of what was going on and they had sufficient sympathy to alert Nehemiah. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came, verse 12, that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Nehemiah realizes that the enemies are conspiring and that they are coordinating their attack. And similarly, we must be realistic in our assessment in the work of the gospel. That there are many who are opposed to God. And because they are opposed to God, they are opposed to God's people. Where opposition in the Christian life and in the experience of a local church is concerned, it's not a question of if, but when. And very often it's not a question of when, but a question of what. Not if, but when. There will be opposition, and very often not when, but what, because pretty much all the time there's opposition of some sort or another. It's really a question of what particular opposition God's people are facing in any particular moment of time. So Nehemiah makes this realistic assessment. People are opposed to God, they're opposed to his people, they're opposed to the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And we need a similarly realistic assessment that as then so today, many are opposed to God, many are opposed to God's people, many are opposed to the building of a gospel church in a local community. Nehemiah makes a realistic assessment. But as well as making a realistic assessment, he also takes appropriate action. We see this in a number of things that he does as the chapter unfolds. He positions men. That's where I got this second P from, verse 13. Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. He positions men in order that Jerusalem might be defended and the work that they had done uh, not be defeated. We're also told that he uh, hatched this plan of half the people constructing while the other half were defending. Verse 16, so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows and wore armour and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. So half the people, they were busy doing the rebuilding. The other half, they were armed, they were ready to defend should they come under attack. But more than that, even those who were doing the constructing, they had, so to speak, the sword in one hand and the trowel in the other. Verse 17, those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other held a weapon. I believe it was from this passage that uh, the late Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Victorian Baptist preacher, got the idea uh, for the title of his magazine, uh, The Sword and the Trowel. 
Namely, uh, that you have the sword in the one hand and the trowel in the other. The trowel to do the work and the sword to defend against attack. So even those constructing, they're busy rebuilding, but they're also, they've got the sword as well as the trowel. We read about the sound of the trumpet in verses 18, 19, and 20. If the trumpet sounded, then uh, they knew there was danger. And uh, verses 21, 22, and 23 about how all the the workers, they they stayed in Jerusalem and uh, there were those who would work by day and there were those who would guard by night. You see the strategy here because the strategy that Nehemiah adopted slowed the build down. They've only got half as many people doing the construction as they had before. But at the same time, the strategy that Nehemiah adopted enabled the work to be completed. Because if they'd all just been constructing and nobody had been ready to defend, then potentially they would have been tacked, they would have been overrun. So it slowed the work down, but it enabled it to be completed and so Nehemiah was enabled to avoid uh, two dangers on the one hand to quit the task to think well there are those who are opposed they're they're uh, plotting and they're they're uh, uh, encircling and they're, they're they're out to get us so so let's just let's just quit and give up and run away same time he avoided just plowing on with the work and failing to make a necessary defense. And there's a great lesson there for the work of the gospel. There are those who in a day, well, particularly like ours, we're not saying ours is the worst day there's ever been, uh, but in a day like ours when uh, the gospel is so much uh, uh, swimming against the tide and there are so many in society who are increasingly Uh, vehemently opposed uh, to all that we stand for as Christians and uh, as churches. There are two dangers. The one is we become overwhelmed by the opposition. We think it's just too much and we, we quit the task. We back away from proclaiming the gospel as we might or as we ought. The other danger is that we just plow on and we're busy, and we're active, and we're, we're preaching the gospel, but we don't realize there's opposition, and we don't realize uh, where the gospel is coming under attack, and we're not there uh, to defend, and, and so on. So Nehemiah here is strategic. We find him positioning. I think we could apply this in various ways. We haven't really got time to apply it in any way at all, uh, but we can apply it in terms of both um, breadth and depth in the light of the local church. That we should be seeking always breadth in terms of reaching out and reaching more people and, and bringing more people under the sound of the gospel and seeing people converted. But at the same time there needs to be a depth. We need to be grounded as God's people and grounding new converts in the truth of God's word uh, in order uh, that the uh, 
the gales of the day might not just sweep us away as Christians and sweep us away as churches. I can't develop that anymore. But you've had two Ps and I promised you a third one. So number one was praying and number two was positioning and number three is persuading. Because we also find Nehemiah persuading in this fourth chapter. And again that shouldn't surprise us. Because just as we found him praying throughout the book and strategizing throughout the book, so we found him persuading throughout the book. For example, in the second half of chapter 2, where having surveyed the scene there in Jerusalem, he seeks to persuade the people to join him in this great rebuilding effort. And so we have chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. 17, Nehemiah is saying, let us build. And 18, the people are responding let us build. And so chapter 3, this great rebuilding effort really gets going. But as Nehemiah has been persuading before, so we find him persuading again. And the key verse for this is verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and uh, your houses. You notice these three particular emphases, are these three notes that Nehemiah strikes here in this 14th verse. He's saying, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord and fight for your brethren. Now why does Nehemiah say... Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord and fight for your brethren. Well, I'll give you three reasons. Because they were easily afraid of them. And they would easily forget the Lord. And they would easily fail to fight. And if that was true of them, then... It can be equally true of us now. We need the same message from the Lord. That we should not be afraid of those who are opposed to the work of God in this world. That we should remember the Lord, our great and awesome God. And that we should fight in the sense that we should give ourselves to the work of the gospel. And we should be in earnest about it. And we need that rallying call time and again. Because left to ourselves, we so easily become afraid of those who are opposed. And we so quickly forget the Lord and all that he is and all that he has done and all that he yet will do. And we so easily quit the fight and step back from the work and give up the task. So if the problem is that we could be afraid of them and we could forget the Lord and we could quit the fight, the solution is that we shouldn't be afraid of them and we should remember the Lord and that we should persevere in the fight. That's what Nehemiah persuades God's people to do in his time and in his place. And that is what the Lord would seek to persuade us to do through the ancient voice of his servant Nehemiah in our time and in our place. Not to be afraid of those who are opposed to the gospel, but to remember the Lord, to have confident faith and trust in our great and awesome God and to... Fight in a sense of to persevere 
and to give ourselves wholeheartedly and unitedly to the work of the gospel. It's make or break in this chapter. With Nehemiah, we find him praying, we find him positioning, and we find him persuading. And so the work goes on, and ultimately the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt. And time and again in our Christian lives, and time and again in our church life, it will be make or break for us as we are perhaps tired and weary, or as we face opposition, or as we feel weak or overwhelmed, that we're to respond as Nehemiah did, to pray and having prayed to pray again, to position, to strategize, to be wise in our endeavors, and to persuade, to persuade one another that we might not be afraid of them, that we might remember the Lord and that we might fight and give ourselves to the work of God, uh, to uh, the glory of God. We must wrap up, but I just want to highlight something that we can't not mention before we take our leave of this fourth chapter of uh, Nehemiah. And that's something that we're told in the 15th verse. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us, in other words, that we knew what they were up to and that we were uh, preparing ourselves to defend ourselves, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. Yes, Nehemiah prayed, and that was vital. And yes, Nehemiah positioned, and that was vital. And yes, Nehemiah persuaded, and that was vital. But it wasn't Nehemiah, it was God who brought their plot to nothing. God was at work. Yes, Nehemiah and his people, they were at work. They were giving themselves to this great task. But God was working in them and God was working through them and God was working for them and no doubt sometimes as with us God was working despite them. And it was God who brought the plot of their enemies to nothing. Because God would see that these walls were rebuilt and Christ will see that his church is built to the glory of his name and to the blessing of souls. We'll give the last word tonight to Hudson Taylor, the great pioneer missionary to China. God's work, done in God's way, will never lack God's supply. Amen.